The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. For those of you who haven't been with us, we've been doing a series that I call Back to Basics. We started in December, I think, and just wanted to take a break from a book and just go back to the most fundamental truths of Christianity that I think are clearly delineated in the New Testament. They're priorities for Christians, priorities for the church, and just wanted to make sure that as a church body, local church body, uh, that we're all on the same page on some of the most fundamental truths of Christianity because we've had a turnover of people over the last nine plus years. Uh, people come and go, and we just can't assume we all have the same perspective or understanding or, or background in teaching, so it's good to stop and go back, and so that's why it's so important to go through this series of Back to Basics. Last week, we talked about a very fundamental question, and that was, uh, what is the mission of the church? And there's a lot of confusion today about what the mission of the church is. We talked about uh, the leadership of the church, church discipline, and today uh, we're looking at the issue of what is the church? What is the church? That's even more fundamental, actually, than last week. What is the mission of the church? Because in that question, what is the mission of the church, we just assume people know what the church is because we're talking about the mission. So we're even going back to a more basic question. Well, what is the church? You would think that every Christian or professing Christian would know what the church is very specifically and definitively because it's clear in Scripture. But the fact of the matter is there's actually much confusion on this question as well. What is the church? And to prove it, just start asking people in one-on-one conversations off the top. So what is the church? How would you define the church in a sentence? Tell me what the church is. What's your definition? And before long, after you ask several people, you're going to get some different answers. And actually, before long, you're you're probably going to get some conflicting answers, which is revealing because these are Christians that you're asking what is the church. So I wanted to go back to the basics of, well, what does the New Testament say, Jesus and the apostles, about the church? They spoke on it very clearly. So that's what we're going to do. I have seven points there. Uh, We don't have time to be exhaustive on this topic. There's much that I can't say. But I thought, well, there's things I definitely do have to say, though, and make a priority about that will be foundational in order to understand this topic and answer the question properly, what is the church. Um, I'm not going to go over every verse that I listed there for you because we don't have enough time, but I did list some key points and Bible verses maybe for your further study, if those are helpful. I will stop and camp on certain points and on certain verses and ask you to follow along and read and see with your own eyes so you can understand and meditate on God's Word so that you get clarity in your mind on these topics. Trying to keep it really simple, the best approach, I think, in answering this question, what is the church? Uh, because there is confusion in among Christians about what the church is. That's point number seven. We'll summarize that as we near the finish. But let's go on to point number one, back to the basics on what is the church. First, we need to define our terms. That's true about any topic that we're studying and where there's confusion and disagreement. You have to agree on the terms. And the only way to do that when you're talking about spiritual things, doctrine, Christian truth, you've got to go to the Bible. You've got to go to the Bible and get the terms from the Bible and use the terms the way they're used in the Bible. That has to drive the conversation. So that's what we're going to do with the word church. And so that's our first vocabulary word. So number one, the word for church, and I put there ekklesia. That is a Greek word. It's the word that's commonly used in your New Testament from Matthew to Revelation to refer to what we know as Christians when they gather together or assemble as the church. The Greek word is ekklesia. It's a compound Greek word, and at the heart of it, of that word ekklesia, it refers to called ones or called out ones, or really, probably the most literal translation would be an assembly of people, a group of people, a crowd of people. That's what ekklesia means. Just a crowd of people. In the New Testament, even in the book of Acts, actually, that word ecclesia is used at least three different ways. Uh, actually, maybe even more than that. 
a group of people. So that's the general meaning. And then it takes on a, a nuanced definition depending upon the context. By the way, that's true of every word. A word only has meaning uh, depending upon its context. Like the word angelos or angel in the Greek New Testament. The word angel doesn't always mean a spiritual being of an angel. Sometimes it can refer to a human being. It just means messenger. But depending upon the context, it can be a spiritual messenger, a human messenger, a good messenger, a bad messenger. So context determines the meaning of every word. And also an important point on this is in the New Testament, there are words that take on technical meanings over time that historically didn't have a technical meaning. Maybe they had a more generic or general meaning. That's true of agape or agapao, uh, the New Testament word, one of the words for love. Prior to its use by the Apostle Paul and Jesus, it didn't have this spiritual Christian connotation as it was used among the Greeks. Just kind of generic word. Or another common one is diakonos, deacon. That word was used among the common people, among pagans, among the Greeks, diakonos, and it just meant servant or a, bu a busboy or a table waiter. That's all it meant. It wasn't spiritual. It's just a servant, a busboy, uh, a butler, a maid, um, a waiter at a restaurant. That's what deacon meant. Servant. Then the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, took that word, adopted it, added spiritual nuances to it, made it a technical term for the church so that it went from just generic table waiter to now an official office in the church. And so this is true of all of our words. They develop meaning over time. That's just true with language. So language is living. It is dynamic. Uh, a word that has a meaning today didn't necessarily mean the same thing 50 years ago in our culture, and its meaning will probably change 10 years from now. And so that's the way it was with the New Testament. So apostolos, sent one, that was a generic general term. It just means an ambassador, uh, an ambassador, an envoy, a sent one, a representative. It was used among the pagan world. It was used uh, in the Greek world, in the Roman world. It wasn't a spiritual term. But as the apostles preached in a Greek and Gentile and Roman and pagan society, they took the common words the people used, and then they attached a specific technical meaning, as did Jesus spoke Greek. So he turned this generic word, apostolos, sent one, formally into a technical term, referring to his 12 hand-selected representatives who would lay the foundation of the church, apostle. So that's true of just about every word we have that's technical in the church. Historically, it wasn't technical. It was just a generic term that everybody used. And that is also true of ecclesia, because it just simply meant assembly, a group of people. That's what the word means. And so uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 32, uh, in your English Bible, the Greek word used there is ecclesia, but it's not translated as church in your English Bible. It's translated as assembly, crowd, mob, <laughs> because this ecclesia, this group of people in Acts 19... It was not the church of Christ. They were not good people. It was a mob. It was a riot. It was a group of people looking to make trouble. But the word ecclesia refers to describe that group of people. Ecclesia. And ecclesia is also used to describe only the church of God in the book of Acts. So even the book of Acts uses ecclesia in different ways. Its meaning is determined by the context. Uh, also in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, verse 38, where Stephen servant of God, on trial, just got arrested illegitimately before the Sanhedrin, giving testimony in court, recounting Old Testament history, about to be stoned to death and murdered in cold blood. As he's giving his testimony, he's recounting Old Testament history. He refers to the life of Moses in the desert, and he says that Moses was among the congregation in the wilderness in the Old Testament. The congregation says your English Bible, referring to Moses, is actually ecclesia again. So in that case, ecclesia refers to Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness, just a group of people. Uh, and it's not talking about the church of Jesus Christ. And that's why our English Bibles don't translate it as church, just congregation. So at its root level, it can just mean group, an assembly of people. And so then... Almighty God, through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit and the apostles, they took that term ecclesia and they made it into a technical term 
to refer to the church, God's people, the body of Christ, and that's how the term developed. And that's its third and most... So the most prominent use of the word ecclesia in your New Testament is in reference to the church of Jesus Christ, where he is the head, he is the savior, he saves a soul, he adds them to his church, the body of Christ. And so that is the dominant use of the word ecclesia throughout the New Testament, and that's how we'll be referring to it today. So that is the key word for church, ecclesia, and all of its different uses, usually referring to Jesus's called out ones, Jesus's assembly, Jesus's special congregation of people who have been saved by his death and resurrection. That's where the word church comes from. So let's go on to point number two. Uh, Jesus prophesies of the church. It's amazing. Jesus came to give his life for the church, die for the church, start the church, launch the church, reach the world through the church with an eternal destiny and purpose, the church. Yet when Jesus came to earth, the church did not exist. It's amazing. 4,000 years of history had gone by and the church didn't exist. Jesus came to establish the church, start the church, in keeping with plans from the Old Testament as well. So you go through the Gospels, you only see the word church two times in its formal sense in which we understand it, and that's out of the mouth of Jesus. And it's prophetic as he's looking forward to it. It's just before his death, the end of his three-year ministry, and he, for the first time, He's already called his apostles. He's been training them. He's been preparing them. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross. And so finally, Jesus mentions the church. And two times in Matthew 16 and 18, and it's prophetic. Here's prophecy about the church. And so I, want, I do want to look at Matthew 16, 18, because this, this is probably the foundational scripture in terms of defining the church. And it's out of the mouth of Jesus himself. And you, you can't pass it over. It's detailed. It is specific. Every word matters, the tense of the verbs matter, the pronouns matter, they're all significant in defining the church. So we'll just pick up Matthew 16, he's talking to his apostles, uh, they just identified him as the Messiah, Jesus commends Peter for that revelation, he didn't come up with that on his own, God the Father revealed that to Peter, and then in verse 18, Jesus says to his disciples, to Peter, the other apostles, I also say to you, uh, Matthew 16, 18, I also say to you, the apostles, and specifically to Peter, who was the head apostle, that you are Peter, Petros, rock. You are Peter, and upon this rock, here's the prophecy, I will build. So that's a prophecy. Jesus didn't build it yet. It wasn't built in the Old Testament. It's something Jesus is going to do. Uh, the tense of the verbs is clear. I will build. This is a prophecy. This is yet future. This is something I haven't done yet. I will build what? I will build my church. There it is. So that's where Jesus introduces this idea of the church for the first time. I will build my church. And it's Jesus' church. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. You will read through your English translation of the Bible in vain to find the church. It doesn't exist. It is not there. Jesus was not on earth in the Old Testament. And here Jesus comes in the fullness as the God-man, and his purpose was to build the church. And that's why he says, and he's telling his apostles, I will build my church. I'm going to build it through you, through the apostles and the New Testament prophets. You will be the foundation of my church. But it, the point is, it is yet future. I will build my church. And it's Jesus who builds the church, and it's Jesus' church. And it doesn't exist yet. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So this is foundational. This is at the heart of a definition of what is the church. And there's a lot of confusion. And if you just take this verse literally at face value out of the mouth of Jesus, then this will uh, dissipate a lot of the fog about understanding what the church is, what it is when it came into existence, who started it, how to grow it. Are we supposed to be about worrying about how to grow the church, how to make it bigger, how to make it more influential, how to make it uh, appealing to the world and uh, church growth book after church growth book after church growth model, blah, blah, blah. How can we grow the church? We don't grow the church. Jesus said, I will build the church, right? Jesus builds the church in his sovereign power. He does use people, yes. He uses the Holy Spirit. He uses biblical truth. He uses the gospel, and he uses fallen sinners to do it. He uses answer prayer. 
But Jesus is the author. He is the one that builds his church. And it's his church. It's not our church. We are privileged to be a part of it as he is the gracious, merciful Savior that allows us to be adopted into it as foreigners. So it's his church. So this is a prophecy. Jesus built the church. Flip over to Matthew 18 if you've got your Bible there. And once again, uh, not long after, he talks about the church again. He's already told them, I'm going to build this church, this special assembly of saved people, beginning with you, the apostles, who will operate in my name after I'm gone, after I die, after I rise, after I go to heaven. You will be left here. You will represent me. You are my ambassadors. And you will lay down the foundation of the church. And you need to manage the church. You are stewards of the church. Sinners will be a part of the church. You are sinners. Other sinners will join you. That is a problem. You need to manage the church. You need to manage sin. You need to expose sin. You need to reprove sin. You need to discipline sin. So that's the context of this passage in Matthew 18. Sin, verse 15, if your brother sins. If your brother in your congregation, in your assembly, in your church, part of the believing community, sins, and they will, we all do. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. That's how you deal with sin among believers. Step one, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he listens to you, oh, he acknowledged his sin, he repented, you've won over the heart of your sinning brother. You forgive them, you forget, case closed, move on. If the the sinner doesn't listen, verse 2, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. That means other believers with you. And so now you've got uh, two or three people confronting the sinner who are witnesses, two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed as you confront the sin. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to even those two or three people because of a hardness of heart, then you tell it, here it is, to the church. So that's only the second time Jesus has ever mentioned the church in his entire ministry, at least represented in the four Gospels. Tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector truly i say to you peter and you apostles whatever you bind on earth shall be uh, have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven i will give you uh, authority from heaven to deal with sin in the church as leaders of the church through the truth of scripture as an abiding authority dealing with sin in the church after i am gone verse 19 again i say to you that if two or you agree on earth about anything regarding discipline and sin in the church that's the context Validated by eyewitnesses, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. This is the discipline process. This is in the private prayer meeting. And verse 20, for there where two or three have gathered, whether where two or three witnesses have gathered together to confront sin and have agreed on the sin, that's what it's talking about. Together in my name, in the name of Christ, in accordance with truth, as for us now as revealed in Scripture, that I am there in their midst. In other words, I agree with the verdict you have made regarding sin, as you have confronted it and exposed it. That's the authority of the local church that Jesus is giving in this passage. And that is a prophecy. This is how it's going to be. Then when the book of Acts comes along, the church does start, we see this very thing happening. We see the apostles wielding authority that is delegated authority, dealing with sin in the church, just as Jesus said. And from heaven on high, Jesus ordains or sanctions their judicial renderings regarding sin if they follow the process. So there it is. Jesus prophesies of the church. He will build the church. The church didn't exist when Jesus was born. It didn't exist in the Old Testament. Then I put John 10, 16. That doesn't mention the word church, but when you read it, it's a prophecy, and it's clear what Jesus is talking about. He's t- talking to Jews. I came to the Jews first, but I'm also going beyond the Jews to other people, to other sheep, to others I have in my fold, and I'm going to gather them as well. That is a prophecy of the church yet to come that is fulfilled in the book of Acts. So there are the three specific verses where Jesus makes reference to the church. Let's go on to number three. Well, if the church didn't exist in the Old Testament, it didn't exist when Jesus was born. It didn't exist during Jesus' ministry on earth. When did the church begin? And we would say it began at Pentecost in the book of Acts. So let's go ahead and go there, Acts chapter 2. Actually, you can start actually in Acts chapter 1. Jesus rises from the dead. He spends 40 days with his disciples. He's still teaching. They are excited. They can't wait. They are ready for the millennium and the eternal state. Uh, and when it's all going to end and the Romans are going to be overthrown and they're going to be able to fulfill all these Old Testament promises. Um, And so 
They're asking Jesus, is it now you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Verse 6 in Acts chapter 1, and Jesus said, whoa, slow down. It is not for you to know the times or the epochs, the eras of history, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8, but you, apostles, disciples, believers, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. He's coming in a new way. He's coming in a unique way. He's coming in a universal way to every believer personally, where he will literally come upon anybody that is saved and live inside them and live in them permanently until they die or go to heaven. This is new. A new work of the Holy Spirit is coming. This is not true prior to this event, and the Spirit didn't do this in the Old Testament the way He's going to uniquely do it, the promise of the Spirit, who's coming in a unique and fulfilling manner. So hold on, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit with this dramatic event that I've been telling you about all these months and even years, as we see in John chapter 7. And so it's a reminder, something special and amazing is going to come, and it did. Jesus ascended into heaven, and shortly thereafter, on the day of Pentecost, the holy day in Israel, chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, uh, Israel is filled with pilgrims of Jews from all over the then-known world to celebrate these feasts, and then that's when God chooses in the fullness of time to send down His Holy Spirit from heaven. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, that's the 120 committed believers in Christ, praying in the upper room. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had been promising the Holy Spirit is coming in a new way, a unique way. They were already saved. Peter was already saved. But he didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit in its fullness as he gets on the day of Pentecost here. And so the Holy Spirit came, verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. He began to reside in them, and he lived in them permanently from that point on. Every believer. Which was unique, because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't indwell every believer all the time. Just trace it. Watch the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was there. He was present. He worked with God. Nothing happened apart from the Spirit of God. But the Spirit relating individually, intimately, and personally to every believer in the Old Testament was different and unique than the way it is today in the church. Sometimes the Holy Spirit came upon a king, temporarily, King Saul, first king of Israel. The Spirit of God came upon him. Then the Spirit of God left Saul when God abandoned him. And then the Spirit left Saul and went upon King David, the second king of Israel. And that special, unique capacity. And the Holy Spirit sometimes came on prophets, came on kings of Israel, came upon priests at times in their duties. In the Old Testament, only males could be priests, only males of a certain age, only males of a certain tribe. Women couldn't be priests. Children couldn't be priests. People with physical defects couldn't be priests. In the New Testament, every Christian is a priest. Isn't that amazing? You have direct access to God. One of the main reasons that every believer can be a priest is because every believer has the Spirit of God living in them, and He provides direct access for you to the Father. So are you a Christian? Yes. Then are you a priest? Yes. That's amazing. So the Holy Spirit is poured out in a unique way. This is actually in fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture that the Spirit would be poured out uniquely verse 5 now there were jews living in, well anyway so then it goes on to describe this amazing event and then now throughout the rest of the book of acts the assembly of god that is brought together in the name of jesus christ by virtue of his death and resurrection is then formally called the church beginning in acts chapter 5 through the rest of the book the church the church so it's a technical distinct designation for the people of god in christ so that is when the church was born Let's go on to number four, the identity of the church. Well, who's in the church? Oh, I do want to read, before I go on to number four, let's look at Ephesians chapter two, because it is foundational, about how the church started, how it begun, how Jesus laid its foundation. By the way, when you're building a house, the first thing you do is you lay the foundation. That's the beginning of any work. And so if Jesus is going to build his church, the first thing he needs to do is lay the foundation. You lay it one time. And then you build upon it. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, 
It talks about the church of Jesus Christ, how it's a new thing, it's a new work of God. And in verse 20, talking about the church, uh, Ephesians 2.20 says, having been built upon the foundation, here it is, of the apostles and the prophets. The church was built on the foundation of the apostles. The apostles did not exist in the Old Testament. So the church couldn't be built in the Old Testament. Here was the foundation. That's where it started. And that's what Jesus said he would do. So let's go on to number four, the identity of the church. Well, who actually... So the church is an assembly of believers. So it's a group of people. So usually, um, ecclesia, when referring to the church, refers to a group of people. It never refers to one individual as the church. You, sir, are the church. It doesn't say that. Inherently, it is a communal term, a group of people. And you can get lost in the crowd. And it's true that you can be in the crowd. You can be with a bunch of Christians and not be a Christian. You can be with the church and not of the church. They were among us, but they were not of us, says John. This is why this is important. Well, the identity of the church. Well, I just gave you a fourfold definition here. First of all, the true church is composed of saved individuals, saved people. Very important. People get confused by this because uh, just about in every church, all throughout church history, inevitably somebody's in the church who's not saved. They're not born again. And many times they think they are part of the church. They, they think they are part of the body of Christ, but they're not. They're not truly saved. They don't really understand the gospel. Sometimes they are self-deceived. Sometimes uh, they are knowingly lying and they're pseudo-Christians. But it's very possible in just about any church congregation where you have the church gathered and inside the church you don't have saved individuals. You have people who are not saved. So it's, it's mixed. But to actually be in the true church of Christ, the spiritual entity of collected souls saved by Christ, you have to be saved yourself. Born again, regenerate. So that's how you become a part of the church. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty eight talks about how you are introduced into the church of Jesus Christ. It is through salvation. And it is through the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. It's an invisible work, a supernatural work. The moment you hear the gospel, you understand the gospel, you believe in the gospel, you turn from your sin, you seek God, Jesus Christ, your Savior. He's the only way you can be saved. You can't save yourself. You believe in who He is, the Lord Jesus, His ministry, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His death for you, His substitutionary death, that you are a sinner. He's the only way to heaven. You're accountable to him. He's the creator. He's the savior. He's the judge. That is the Jesus. He is the only one that can save you. And when you believe that and understand it, then instantaneously there's a supernatural transaction where you are regenerate or born again by almighty God. And you are added supernaturally to the body of Christ locally, but also universally and also all throughout church history. A part of the family of God. It's a supernatural transaction. That is only true of saved people. People who know everything that I just said. They are truly saved. They are saved from what? They are saved from their sin. Meaning, they understand what sin is. Their definition from sin comes only from the Bible, not from themselves, not from culture, not from somebody else, not human opinion, from the revelation of God. He is the one that defines sin. Fundamental. And all throughout church history, there have been people in the church who are deceived, and they think they're a part of the church, they think they're Christians, and they are not. And that's why Jesus warned the disciples before he founded the church in Matthew 7. He said, behold, watch out at the end of the age, at judgment, there will be people before my throne who cry out, Lord, Lord, and, they, I, and I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you wicked, into eternal damnation, into hell. These are people, that is the scariest passage in the Bible. Because there are people all throughout church history who at any given moment, they think they are saved, they think they believe in the gospel, they think they know Jesus, they think their sins are forgiven, they think they're going to heaven, and then they may meet the Lord Jesus and he says, no, you are deceived. That's frightening. And sadly, throughout church history, that's been most true of people who are raised in the church. Children who are raised in the church. Time and time again, all throughout church history, we read about it over and over. Uh, they're raised with Bible truth since the time they're infants, and they have no other exposure to anything else, so why not believe it? My parents taught it to me. All the people I'm surrounded by taught it to me, and this is what the Bible says. 
So they think they believe it. They think they're a Christian. They said a prayer. They got baptized as an infant or at some point. Well, I got baptized. Must be a Christian. And sometimes later on they realize, oh, I'm not a Christian. Or sometimes they think they're saved and they are not. They are deceived. Time and time again we see that of folks who have grown up in the church. They are the most vulnerable to this deception. Self-deception. So you've got to be saved. Uh, Another key point. The church is not a building. See this building, beautiful building? This is not the church. But when you go to a dictionary, you look up church, that's usually the first word. A building. Stained glass windows, cross on the wall, liturgical accoutrements everywhere. No, that is not the church. So in your New Testament, when you see the word ecclesia or church, it never refers to a building, ever. The church is the people. Believers in Jesus Christ. That, that is the church of Christ. In local congregations and universally and invisibly, the people of God who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and have been saved. That is the church. And here in our American materialistic thinking, we have been trained, unfortunately, over years and years and years to think that the church building is what matters or it is part of the church, and it's not. We don't need a building to do church. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, they didn't have any church buildings. They met Sometimes they met in the house. Well, actually, the first church met in the temple courtyard. Then they started meeting in people's homes, the book of Philemon, the book of Romans, people's homes, met uh, in caves, met on grassy fields, highways and byways, and that's been true all throughout church history. And a good lesson to broaden your horizons on this very myopic, narrow-minded American thinking is to go visit churches around the world, as God has allowed me to do just within the last five, ten years, where I think about, yeah, when I went to Mexico... And worship with the people of God, there there was no church building. It was an outdoor courtyard with a cement floor and a tent over their heads. That's been church for them for years. It's where the people gather. That's church. When I go to Kiev, I've been there several times to the church in Kiev. Uh, For 10 years now, they plan a church and they meet every Sunday in a dilapidated public library. It's uh, dirty. It's old. It's fallen apart. It stinks. It's musty. It's crowded. And it's where the people of God meet. It's church. When I went to Ghana, Africa this last summer, uh, this church plant that's a year and a half old, they don't have a building. They meet on the grass in the backyard of a building with a huge tent. That's to this day is their church. And Pastor Samuel's going to come visit us in March and preach from this pulpit on March 13th, Lord willing. And that's the church he pastors. There is no building. They don't have any stained glass windows and hymnals and pews. It's the people of God that matter. That's the church. Uh, and I can go on and on. When I went to St. Petersburg, Russia, same thing. We met in a, an old warehouse. I went to Israel, went to church there, the biggest fundamental uh, Bible church in Jerusalem. Uh, meets in an old, uh, musty warehouse. Four cinder block walls. That's it. With 200 people worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ together. That's the church. So the church is not a building. In India, we visited, I don't know, five, ten churches. They didn't have any church building. We met outside. They, we met in buildings. Some, a couple of rat holes where the people gathered and they called it church. But it was the people of God. So we need to get that as a priority in our brain, uh, the identity of the church. So it's saved people, not a building. It's not Israel. Uh, so people who say, well, yeah, the Jews rejected Jesus collectively, and so then he redefined Israel and then started calling them the church. So uh, the church is the new Israel, the spiritual. No, it's not. That's wrong thinking. That is not biblical. Uh, if you do a study of Romans 9 through 11, Paul makes that clear. Israel and the church are distinct. They are different. God preserves the ethnic distinction of Israel all throughout the Old Testament, even in the future. There's a future for the nation of Israel. So Israel and the church are not synonymous. The church does not supplant Israel. Very clear. As a matter of fact, I would challenge you and say, every time you see the word Israel... Or the word Jew, 100% of the time it always refers to ethnic Israel, a Jewish person by blood. You can't spiritualize it and say, uh, because you're a Christian, you're a spiritual Jew. No, you're not, actually. We are blessed by the Jews. Uh, The Messiah is a Jew, and we're adopted into his Jewish family by adoption. But we don't have that ethnicity, ethnicity as Israelites or Jews. So don't confuse that. So it's not Israel. 
uh, it is the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.12, Romans 12, 4 and 5. Uh, in Corinthians, Paul refers to the church as the body. I put the body of Christ down the church um, because that was Paul's favorite term. It's not the only term. There are many metaphors to describe the church as a spiritual entity from God's point of view. That was Paul's favorite term. I like that one. It's unique. It was never referred to the believing people in the Old Testament. The Old Testament Israelites were not called the body of Christ. People before Abraham who were saved, they weren't called Jews. They weren't called Israelites. They were just the people of God. Noah was not a Jew. He was a believer. What was he? He wasn't part of the church of Israel. He just knew God. First, he was part of the family of God, a man of faith. But the body of Christ is a unique term, and it highlights for Paul diversity and unity all at the same time. That's the imagery. But there are many other beautiful metaphors of the church, like the bride of Christ, the wife of Christ, the firstborn, the building, the house of God, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, chosen people, the people of God, the elect, the flock, the temple, the virgin, the city, the possession, the family, the new creation, the inheritance, the branches. I could go on. Somebody listed 96 of them. I won't list all of those. Beautiful images of Christ's church. And 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen 18 says, the church is when the people assemble together, when they assemble. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. 18. So that's the identity of the church. Number five, the mystery of the church. Uh, Tim read this earlier. Ephesians 3, 1 through 9, since we're in Ephesians. So the church did not exist in the Old Testament. The church is a New Testament reality revealed by the apostles. Jesus said he would build, build it. Paul says specifically in Ephesians 3 and in other places, he talks about the church, verse 4. Ephesians 3, 4, he's talking about the mystery of Christ. What is this mystery? He's talking about the entity of the church. It is a mystery. A mystery is something revealed for the first time that was hidden in ages past. So the Old Testament prophets weren't talking about the church. It was a mystery. It was revealed, this idea of the church, to his holy apostles for the first time through the Spirit. And then in verse 9, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God and revealed in the New Testament. So the church was a mystery, not known in the Old Testament, revealed and begun in the New. That is clear by Paul in Ephesians 3. And what is this mystery? Why is it called a mystery? What was the hidden truth about it? Some people say, well, that Gentiles would be saved. No, that's not a mystery. That was always God's plan. Noah wasn't a Jew, as far as we know. He was saved. Abel wasn't a Jew. He was saved. So what was he a part of? He wasn't a part of Israel. He wasn't a part of the church, but he was saved. What is the mystery? Well, the mystery isn't that Gentiles will get saved in the New Testament because God told Abraham in Genesis 12, uh, the Messiah is going to come through you. You're going to become a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless that nation, and I'm going to bless those who bless you. And out of you also, I'm going to bless the Gentiles as well. So early on, God made it clear salvation belongs to the Gentiles as well. And there were plenty of Gentiles who got saved in the Old Testament, like Job, Melchizedek, and others. But in the New Testament, this mystery is revealed. And what is it? It's not that it's that God takes the Jew and the Gentile and makes a body of new believers who have one new and unique identity. They have a different identity than Old Testament Israel. They have a different identity than uh, people who got saved before Israel existed. It's a unique identity in the church through the person of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, with unique promises, a unique leadership, a unique history that they're given, a unique role that they have during the time of the tribulation, a preservation of their identity even into eternity future, according to the end of the book of Revelation, the church. So there were pre-Israelites who got saved before Abraham, then Israelites who got saved during the time of Abraham. There were Gentiles who weren't Jews that got saved during the time of Abraham. And then there is the church age of anybody getting saved during the church age is a part of this church, this new and unique man where Gentiles now would be on equal footing and status with any Jew by virtue of their relationship with Jesus Christ. So it's not salvation for Gentiles, but it's the unique relationship that we have in this new man called the body of Christ. So that is the mystery of the church. One new man. 
So let's go on to number six, the future of the church. Uh, I, not long ago, I taught on 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 on the rapture. The rapture? Why, do you, why would you say the rapture? Because the word rapture is in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's in the text. I didn't make it up. Some dispensationalists didn't make it up. It's, it's there. Raptured. Snatch up. Whoosh. Jesus is going to snatch up believers in Christ, the church, at some point. Amazing. Supernatural. So we talked about 1 Thessalonians 4. That's clear. Jesus snatches up the church at any given moment. There are no prerequisites. It could happen at any time, any minute, and anybody that knows Christ personally will be caught up with him into the air. And then we go to heaven with Jesus, according to John 14. And probably rewards uh, and those kind of things happen there. We're freed from sin. Hallelujah. Finally. And we are prepared and we were with Jesus until he returns again at the second coming. And we get to come with him. Now, that is exciting. At the second coming of Christ. And so that is the future destiny of the church, that we will be raptured by the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you're alive on earth or you died in Christ. You will be raptured with Christ to meet him in the air. According to Revelation 6 through 18, which is a detailed chronological description of the worldwide tribulation, the greatest tribulation in the history of the world that is yet future, clearly according to John and Jesus. It is described in detail. Not one time is the church ever mentioned being in, in existence on earth in 6 through 18. But in Revelation chapter 1 through 3, John the Apostle mentions the church 19 times in light of the seven churches. But when the tribulation begins, the church is gone, never mentioned. Are there believers during the tribulation? Yes. There are believing Jews. There are believing Gentiles who get saved, but they don't become an immediate part of the church during the tribulation, but they are saved just as much as Noah was saved and Abel was saved without a church. And so the church, I believe, is preserved. They are not in the tribulation on planet Earth, but believers are on Earth and will get saved during the time of the tribulation. Then after the tribulation... So Christians get raptured with Jesus, go to heaven, are with Christ, and then when Christ returns at the second coming, Jesus comes literally to earth. Angels are with Jesus. The church is with Jesus. They are following Jesus, I believe, in white robes, because that's what Revelation says. That refers to our purity, cleanness, and maybe even white robes. And on white horses, or horses. What are those? They could be horses, flying horses for all I know. That sounds fun following the Lord Jesus Christ to earth, and we rule with Christ after the tribulation during the millennium for 1,000 years. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, where he made two specific promises to the church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those of you who are in the church, these promises are for you. By the way, all seven promises in Revelation 2 and 3 refer to the future. After the tribulation, either the eternal state or the millennium or both. And two times, Matthew, uh, Revelation 2, Revelation 3, there is a promise to churches, to Christians and churches, that in the future they will do what? They will rule with Christ with a rod of iron on his behalf. That's got to refer to the millennium. That's awesome. Co-reigning with Christ, also sitting on his throne of authority. That's the millennium, where he reigns on the earth, according to Revelation 5.10, as king of the world, of the earth, of the universe. And Christians, the church, is privileged to be a part of that. So the identity of the church is preserved when we're raptured in heaven and when we return and on into the future. We don't just meld into one body of all believers from all time and we lose our identity as the church, the body of Christ. That is not what the Revelation, book of Revelation particularly says. So that is our future, our future destiny. And then finally, number seven, the confusion about the church. This is just a summary of wrong, typical, dominant views about the church. I've already mentioned some of these. Um, confusion about the church. Some say that the church existed in the Old Testament. And here's where covenant theologians have a problem because they don't agree on when the church began. Covenant theologians. That would be if you many Presbyterian churches, Lutheran churches. They, all, they get this from Catholic theology is where it came from. Roman Catholic Church, Orthodox churches, Presbyterian churches, Episcopal churches, and on and on. Some Methodist churches, 
covenant theology. They believe that the church existed in the Old Testament. It began with Adam or maybe Noah or maybe Abraham or maybe Moses. We're not sure, but it began and existed in the Old Testament. That's not true. They say the church, some people, hyper-dispensationalists say, well, the church began in Acts chapter 9 with Paul, not Jesus. So there's one extreme to the other. Some say that it began with John the Baptist. Some say Acts 28, the end of Paul's life. Uh, some say that the church supplanted Israel, and now we're the new spiritual Israel. No. Some hyper-dispensationalists say that uh, the Old Testament had salvation by works with Israel, and in the New Testament, it's salvation by grace through the church. That's wrong. Salvation has always been by grace through faith apart from works in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That has never changed. Some people say that if you are baptized by water, you are automatically an official member of the church. That is not true. You have to be saved. When, when you're saved, you are added to the body of Christ, whether you got dipped or dunked with water or not. Some say that the new covenant does not apply to the church. That's wrong. Um, the new covenant is all about the church. Jesus at the Last Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood to the apostles who founded the church. The book of Hebrews says, this is the new covenant. Jesus is the priest. If you are the church, you're a part of, a partaker of the new covenant. Well, the promise of the new covenant was made to the Jews, not to Gentiles of the church. Yeah, true. But the promise of a saving Messiah was made to Jews and not to Gentiles. And Jesus is our Savior, isn't he? It's the same logic. We are blessed through the Jews. That's another argument Paul makes in Romans 9. Uh, two more. That all the new covenant promises are fulfilled in the church. That's not true because there were specific land promises, literal geographical land promises made in the new covenant that have not been fulfilled and they will be fulfilled in the future yet to come. I think with the nation of Israel. And... Finally, that it is not distinct from Israel in heaven or the tribulation of the millennium, which is kind of all meld into one saved family. That is not true. Just one example. Revelation 21, 12 through 14, the new heavenly Jerusalem, the new heavenly eternal city, the eternal state of God Almighty, where God the Father is and Jesus reigns in glory. It says this beautiful eternal city that is perfect without sin and all of God's people from all ages are there, including elect angels. But there's a distinction of believers there. And it says that it describes the apostles' names are engraved in stone and also the 12 tribes of Israel's names are engraved in stone. And they're in this eternal city. So their identities are preserved for all eternity. God remains, keeps a distinction between the people of Israel and the church for his purposes, but we are all one family of God. So hopefully that alleviates or relieves some of the confusion about the church. But the most important thing is for us right now, God is working through the church. He's building the church and he does it one saved soul at a time. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're not in the church. And I would invite you, the Lord Jesus, he's pleading with you. He's pricking your conscience. He reveals truth to you. He want, he's calling you to repentance. And all you have to do is cry out to him. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Lord Jesus, I believe in your death and resurrection. But I can't save myself. You're the only way to heaven. You are the judge. I'm accountable to you. Save my soul. And God, in his grace and mercy, will answer that prayer the moment you pray it, if you mean it. All for his glory. Well, with that, let's transition now into communion. And this is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ gave two ordinances to his church, not seven, but two. One was baptism. Once you become a Christian and are saved, then you can publicly identify yourself by getting baptized. That is the model in the book of Acts and in the New Testament. If you believe in the gospel, you've been regenerate, then you need to get baptized. That's a public profession of what God did on the inside for you. And then also, the other ordinance is communion or the Lord's table or the Lord's supper, called many things. Some people call it Eucharist. Usually Catholics do, but it's a biblical word, right? In 1 Corinthians 10, it means thanksgiving. When we come together, we celebrate the Lord's communion. We're giving thanks. Lord Jesus, thank you for saving me, being a savior. And indeed, it is a celebration because that's what Paul calls it. It's a time for celebration for Christians 
So we have that privilege now. So as our ushers, you can go ahead and get into your places there. And I do want to read 1 Corinthians 11 by way of reminder, as Paul just simply explains what communion is about. If you're a Christian, you know Jesus, you're born again, you love Jesus, uh, you're invited to be a part of communion today. Just remember what uh, the Apostle Paul said. Actually, the Holy Spirit said through him, for I received from the Lord Jesus, says Paul, that which I also delivered to you. That the, Oh, by the way, as the tray's coming around, uh, just a couple of things. Just grab one cup. Inside that one cup, whoop, it's got the bread and the drink together. So we're only making one time around. That might be new for some of you. And also just hold on to that tray until somebody literally pulls it out of your hand, and that's the safe way to do it. And then we'll partake together in just a moment after I read this passage. Um, For I received from the Lord Jesus that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, this is the Last Supper, he took bread as a symbol, and when he had given it to his disciples, oh, after, after he gave thanks, there's the word Eucharisto, verse 24, he gave thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So that's what we're doing. We're remembering the Lord Jesus Christ and his life that he gave on behalf of sinners. So it's a remembrance, a memorial. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant. There it is. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me supposed to represent the cup blood. Blood always means death. Death was what God required for sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, died once as an eternal, infinite sacrifice for all sin, for those who would believe in his sacrifice. So that's what we remember. We remember the Lord's perfect life, his sacrificial death on our behalf for the forgiveness of sin. We are thankful for that. We celebrate this. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's risen. He is alive. He's coming again. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. So when we eat it, we eat it in a worthy manner. We want to examine our conscience uh, in your heart. Ask God for forgiveness of sin. Um, Thank the Lord for the relationship that he's given to you through his sacrifice. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. Examine yourself. Be honest with God. And in so doing, then you eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks communion, eats and drinks judgment to himself, so God will hold us accountable for taking communion. So if you're trying to hide sin or you're not a Christian, you're taking communion, you will incur judgment from Almighty God for that. That is frightening. If we don't judge properly, for this reason, many among you are weak, sick, Some even die as a result, but if we judge rightly, we would not be judged, but rather we have cause to celebrate the Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.